Woven like a tapestry, written like a symphony in harmony, spoken in a thousand tongues, painted like a thousand setting suns. Every little part, all a work of art. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Gospel Beautiful Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Chan. Today's conversation is one that I have been looking forward to for a while. It's with my uh, colleague, Gary Simpson, now emeritus professor. Uh, he just recently retired this summer, and I thought it would be a, a, this would be a great opportunity to reflect with him really about two things. I was interested in two things. One is his long history within the Lutheran Church. He's also a Seminex grad, if that terminology isn't familiar to you. Just listen to the conversation. It will be kind of quickly become familiar. So we dive a little bit into kind of North American Lutheran history, especially kind of middle of the century on into the modern day. But then the second piece we talk about is really more about a kind of retrospective look at some of the major questions that he's been wrestling with throughout his career, many of which have to do with what I guess you could call uh, political theology. Gary is very insightful on these things. Most recently, he's uh, done what I think is some remarkable work on Cicero, and and, and especially the way that Cicero impacts Luther, Martin Luther. So there is a lot uh, in Gary's career that is worth, there's so much there that's worth worth probing. His work on just war uh, at the early part of the 2000s was really interesting. It was, of course, happening in the context of uh, the Iraq War. So there's so much here in Gary's career. I urge you to check out the link below where you'll be able to get um, information about the various books and articles and things that he's written. And otherwise, enjoy the conversation. As always, I'm always looking for new guests. I've recently had a nice kind of uh, uh, influx of recommendations, which I really appreciate. And those recommendations are going to really take us into some interesting spaces, including everything from um, uh, uh, the role of prisons within society and ministry uh, to talking about... um, uh, uh, to talking about uh, the Bible and borders, all kinds of interesting guest recommendations that have been coming in. So um, make sure to keep sending them to me. I really want to hear them. You can send them to the email address chanspam82 at gmail.com. Uh, before we get to the conversation, we're going to hear just a few words from our sponsors. Thank you so much to our sponsors. We love you. Appreciate all of the uh, uh, support that you give to us. So uh, without further ado, couple words from our sponsors and then to the conversation. Thanks. I'm Grace Allworth, co-owner of Studio 2 Ceramics of Northeast Minneapolis. We make small batch pottery and teach low pressure casual classes with the goal of sharing the love of fun and creativity with our community. At Studio 2 Ceramics, we're committed to purchasing local supplies and using sustainable, earth-gentle practices whenever possible. Whether you're looking for a thoughtful gift, custom churchware, or a new favorite mug, Studio 2 Ceramics has something for you and something to share. Listeners of the Gospel Beautiful podcast receive 10% discount on all purchases. Visit our website, studio2ceramics.com, that's the number two, and use the coupon code GOSPEL. Hey there, Gospel Beautiful Podcast listeners. This is Brian Schrader, creator of Worship Forward, a resource for progressive, innovative worship leaders. Here you'll find conversations about arranging hymns for your worship band, using song lyrics that promote justice, and how to choose great worship songs to use at your church. Check it out at worshipforward.blog. Gary Simpson, thanks so much for joining me for this conversation. My pleasure, Michael. It's great to be here. Well, congratulations on your upcoming retirement. It's, uh, it's been a, you know, you have been in this game for uh, a lengthy period of time and, and you've run a great race and it's just an honor to kind of uh, have a conversation with you about um, your, your vocation as a teacher, preacher, pastor within the church and um, also about the work that you're continuing to do. So I'm, I'm grateful that you agreed to it. Yeah, well, it's a wonderful invitation. Thank you. Well, Gary, I want to start with, uh, in a little bit of a retrospective way, um, like I said, you've, you've been a, a kind of educator and pastor within the church for a pretty, pretty significant amount of time, I think since the mid-70s, in fact, if I read the date correctly. Right. Is that right? And um, go ahead, go ahead. 
Yeah, so I um, graduated with an MDiv in, in 1976, so May of 76. And um, by uh, August, I was in the San Francisco Bay Area. And um, the original purpose for going out there it was to be a worker priest. And so this was still the Missouri Synod. We were part of Missouri Synod, even though we were a Seminex, Seminary in Exile, Christ Seminary, Seminex. And uh, so we were um, on the fringes of the... Uh, leaders in California were very progressive Missouri Synod people, which is why they brought me out there. And um, the original reason they hadn't done quite enough good research, um, it, it would have been a, a kind of a chaplaincy program that, that they brought me out there for, for instance, as a hospital, as a, actually a kind of a um, convalescent hospital uh, chaplain up and down the peninsula. That didn't work out, and then, um, but a congregation found me, and Emanuel Lutheran Church in Alameda, and they called, they actually called me, and I started there on November 1st, I think 1976, but as, as a worker priest pastor, um, but there was no ordination yet, so I actually didn't get ordained until November of 77. So 76, I count as my beginning of word and sacrament ministry, and, um, so those were emergency situations in those days. And, and um, it was okayed by the, actually the district, the Missouri Senate district president said, go ahead. So the special dispensation. I so that's where my pastoral ministry started. I was hospital chaplain and also did trauma intervention at um, Peninsula Hospital right across the highway from the San Francisco airport. If you ever fly into the airport there, you probably have. The hospital is right across the, and I work graveyards there, um, six days every two weeks, um, and then, and then I was the Protestant chaplain. I also worked for an organization called San Francisco um, Ministries. So it was a, a, a Lutheran Ministries of San Francisco. It was a Pan Lutheran ALC LCA Missouri Synod. Uh, all the congregations in San Francisco themselves work together on a number of projects. Yeah, well, Gary, so that's my yeah. uh, path started. So fewer, there are fewer and fewer uh, people within the system right now who remember the Seminex days or who, like yourself, were actually graduates of Seminex. Can you just kind of outline where that terminology comes from, how the movement, I guess you could even call it, or how this uh, seminary in exile came about, what, what actually happened there? Well, I'll, yeah, I can go, you can go back to the 40s if you wanted to, and some of that history, even to the 30s, actually. So there was a growing um, split within the, Missouri, within the Missouri Synod on, I'll just call it a more conservative wing and a more progressive wing, a more Lutheran unity wing. It was more open to uh, doing things together with the American Lutheran Church and the Lutheran Church in America, and also ecumenically in general, Presbyterians and Catholics and things like that. But then there was um, a very um, strong political push in the Missouri Synod to take it, to, to have conservatives take it over. And um, so in 1969, um, uh, the two most powerful positions in the Missouri Synod had always been the president of the Synod. And at that time, the Synod meant the whole country. Uh, the Missouri Synod is the entire country. Um, the president of the Synod and the president of the big seminary in St. Louis, Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. Um, so in 1969, it was a convention at Denver, Colorado. And the convention... <laughs> it was really wild. Um, I was not there, of course. I was still in college. Um, but the convention uh, elected as the president of the Missouri Synod, Jacob Preuss, and as the president of the seminary, John Teachin. The two people that represented just these two poles. So, um, and at the end of the convention, uh, Jacob Preuss announced to the media, the secular media and the religious media, uh, John Teachin must go. I mean, he actually, that was the, actually the word. So uh, there was, uh, right from the get-go, um, this battle was set, so to speak. And um, Preuss was uh, from Minnesota, 
His cousin is David Preuss, who was the president of the American Lutheran Church. They were first cousins and actually knew each other very well. They actually lived together in the same house for a year or so. Um, and David's a, uh, he's in his 90s now, and he's still very vigorous. And, and uh, he and I uh, have breakfast together every once in a while <laughs> over the years and talk about these things. But uh, Jacob's father was the founder of the, of the modern Republican Party here in the state of Minnesota. And so Jacob grew up in the governor's mansion and in governor, and, and so his father was also the governor of Minnesota. And so he grew up very politically, uh, politically oriented. He was very charismatic, the kind of guy that you could go out and have a beer with and chuckle with and all that kind of stuff. But uh, he had a he had an agenda, and it was he had announced it was to get rid of, well, to get rid of all the liberal professors at Concordia Seminary, headed now by their new president John Teachin, who had come from the East Coast and who had worked for, um, uh, the um, what was it called, Lacusa, the Lutheran Church USA, which was a pan Lutheran thing to get Lutherans together, and he had actually been an executive in New York City for Lacusa. Can I interrupt the story really sure. quickly, Gary, and just ask something? You know, we're like right now living in this kind of time of immense political polarization, but it strikes me that like when you were doing Seminex, it was shortly after the end of the Vietnam War. And so I'm wondering if there was a kind of partisan afterglow that sort of bled into some of these uh, denominational fights. Or am I just misreading that? Or Oh, no. So civil rights movement of the 60s was part of this. Um, Vietnam was a, was a part of it. So a lot of the um, national politics leaked over, and as it still does today, the issues are a little different, um, but it easily leaks over to the church politics, so to speak. And so, you know, the conservatives were also supporters of Nixon and usually more Republican. The, um, the progressive Missouri, so we called them moderate Missouri Senate. We called ourselves moderates. Because they called us extremists, we called ourselves moderates. So it was the conservatives and the moderates, what I would call the more progressives. But, um, but we were the moderates um, who wanted to do more things with the ALC and the LCA and the Presbyterians, and who also likely were more oriented to um, per, uh, uh, against the Vietnam War for civil rights, Early and for women's ordination, part of the Seminex thing was about women's. The, uh, the first, uh, I actually had a classmate who was the first woman who wanted to be a Missouri Synod pastor. She ended up becoming an Association of Evangelical Lutheran Churches, AELC. That was the, what, what happened to the Seminex congregations, about 250 of them that left the Missouri Synod, joined and made an interim a denomination that wanted to go out of business. Its only job was to call the ALC and the LCA towards a new Lutheran church, as we called it in those days, which became the ELCA. So we were the kind of the, the catalyst for the forming of the ELCA in 87, I guess, 86, 87. Yeah. So that, so you're right. So the, the things that are going on in society um, are bleeding over into church um, Pretty easily. I mean, it's 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 uh, there's not a cell wall there. It's more of a, uh, a a cell membrane, you know, and the things are going back and forth. Um, yeah. Go ahead. The, it, uh, we phrased it, of course. They phrased it. Uh, the conservatives said, you know, we don't believe in the Bible. Those of us who are moderates, because we don't believe the world is six or ten thousand years old, and and. Um, uh, it, the kind of in biblical interpretation, but we phrased it not so much as, um, as, as, as a battle of the Bible, which it was often called, by the way, the secular press called it the battle of the Bible. Uh, we called it the battle of the gospel because what should stand in the middle of interpreting the scriptures is, uh, is the gospel. And uh, that was how we interpreted Luther and the Lutheran confessions. They interpreted Lutheran confessions through 17th century Lutheran and Reformed Orthodoxy. Um, so there's even a, a battle on who uh, 
uh, how do you interpret the Lutheran confessions and Lutheran theology was deep in that entire thing. And that had to do also with whether you used, you know, quote, modern uh, interpretive historical critical method was what it was called in those days. And, and um, yeah, so that was that was there all the way. And um, these were the hot topics and these were the dividing the dividing lines between the conservatives and the moderates in Missouri soon. And, but by 1974, that was, I was a second year student at Concordia Seminary at the time. Uh, this is when Jacob Preuss got um, enough people on the board of those days called the Board of Control of Concordia Seminary or nine representatives from across the church. And he had finally tipped, um, the majority, so it was a 5-4 majority. So every vote that was taken against my professors at Concordia Seminary was a 5-4 vote to fire teaching, to fire some of my other professors, and they were going to get rid of them all over a period of years. It was a, it was a whole process and stuff. So it was very bitter. Um, it was very rigid. There, was no, there were no compromises possible because you were getting rid of people. I mean, you were literally, literally firing them from their teaching professions, their professors. So a lot of people that eventually ended up in what now we call ELCA seminaries, like the Lutheran School of Theology in Chicago, nine of my professors, when Seminex did finally go out of existence in 1983, um, nine professors went to Lutheran School of Theology in Chicago. Four of them went to Pacific Lutheran Theological Seminary. Others of them took parish calls, a couple of them retired, things like that. Yeah, that, that's so that's help, really helpful history, Gary. And I was I was going to ask you to sort of lay out what some of those red lines were, where some of the battle lines were. But it sounds like you, I mean, you did that very effectively. It sounds like one had to do with uh, just sort of cooperative ventures with other Lutheran denominations. One had to do with scripture. It sounds like another might have to do with more social issues like civil rights and and maybe yeah. militarism or or just uh, the, the Vietnam War more generally. Any other kind of battle lines that you or women's well, ordination also. We, it was becoming a big one because the ALC and the LCA were already starting to ordain women. And so uh, that was a big one. Um, an interesting one, and part of the splits in the Missouri Synod actually happened in the mission field. And it goes all the way back to the 30s. Um, because Missouri has this, still does, has this theology of uh, what they call unionism to being in church union, altar and pulpit fellowship union with, with people, denominations that do not have um, complete agreement with the, the doctrines of the Missouri Synod. Missouri wasn't supposed to be adding anything to the confessions, but they always had these extra statements, including Price made one up in 1971, I think, not too long after he became the president. And they used those as kind of teaching standards, even though uh, they weren't in anybody's constitution. Um, but so back in the mission fields, um, if um, a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod missionary, this guy's name was Brooke in India, um, there were no other Lutherans within over 200 miles of where he was in India. He was there all by himself. Um, there were other missionaries. Uh, Presbyterians and Methodists and Baptists and some others. And so he would have prayer fellowship with them, and he got excommunicated from the Missouri Synod uh, in 1930. I forget exactly what year it was. And that actually was kind of the f uh, first kind of, uh, like you call, call it a red line, that started dividing people. And so you had a whole history of these tremendous scholars, more moderate or progressive Missouri Synod scholar, people like Yaroslav Pelikan and uh, Martin Marty, and before that, others too, lots of them, um, who, um, uh, who protested the, the um, defrocking of uh, Brooke and then other ones. So the mission fields actually also became, because of this theology of unionism, no ecumenical uh, anything beyond, you know, kind of a rational dialogue 
but you couldn't pray with people. You couldn't preach with people. You couldn't preach in their churches if they invited you. So out in the mission field, so to speak, you know, the, the quote foreign mission, as it was called, or the overseas missions in those days, um, you were not to do any of that stuff, according to the conservative point of view. So that, that was also a very early on, it was a very hot topic. Yeah. So what do you, I want to go to sort of of some larger, I guess, meta type questions. Um, As you kind of reflect back on those decades, beginning in the 70s, 80s, all the way up until now, what do you feel like is sort of still the same? What sort of continues in terms of maybe problems, but also positive things as well? And what do you think has kind of changed? Like, are there some, are there some Overton windows, as it were, that have actually completely shifted that, you know, exists now that maybe didn't exist then? Or just how, how does it, f- I guess, if you were to sort of get in a, a time machine and go back, what would, what would you notice is the most different and maybe what is still similar? Well, let me say something that I think is similar, although there are differences, there were differences across the different, let's just call them the three big Lutheran, you could throw in the Wisconsin Synod too, and there's a whole bushel of smaller uh, Lutheran uh, denominations in the United States, of course. Um, but just take the top, the, the big three, the Missouri Synod, the ALC, and the LCA. Um, Lutherans in the United States have always been very um, congregational-oriented without being congregationalist. Um, in other words, um, the, the ELCA today's official constitutional polity is congregationalist. Um, so they cannot, so if you have an, an errant pastor in a local congregation here in Minneapolis or something, let's say sexual abuse of somebody, um, nobody can sue the ELCA or even the Minnesota area, the Minneapolis area synod. They can only sue that congregation. <laughs> so, so the strength of congregational, now the LCA was always a little bit more bureaucratic and hierarchical and the ALC because it was on the prairies a lot, you know, in the Dakotas and Minnesota and stuff like that. Um, that didn't like that more hierarchical organization. Um, and so they were more, they were in many ways closer to the Missouri Synod. The Missouri Synod, it's, so there's an article seven of the constitution of the Missouri Synod says the, the Synod is only, only has advisory capacity relative to congregations. Now, the conservatives have tried to put so many um, constraints on that that it's hardly ever true anymore, but um, it's still there in the Constitution, never been revoked. So the kind of congregations matter, and they still matter for um, uh, Lutheran churches, and it's not a surprise, I don't think, that Martin Marty, who had came, came out of the Missouri Synod um, originally, um, headed up a, the, the, this huge uh, field called Congregational Studies while he was a professor and still active at the University of Chicago. And his uh, student, Jim Wynn, who was three years ahead of me, four years ahead of, well, three years ahead of me in the seminary, came out of there and he headed up the, that project. Um, so the kind of congregational orientedness without being congregationalist. Um, and I think, you know, and that's kind of my tradition as well. And so I've always pushed that. And so I've done a lot of stuff at Luther Seminary on congregational studies and teaching congregational mission. Uh, so both the mission and the congregation stuff to think of mission, not over there in India, but what's going on in, in the neighborhood that my congregation on Chicago and 24th, um, how does this congregation now, not waiting for people to come in, but how's it going out into the community? And that, of course, for me, um, intersects with my approach to public theology and things like that. Well, that's exa- that's exactly where I wanted to transition to next is that I think for, well, your dissertation was on, uh, was on political theology. I think it was called reciprocity in political theology. And um, you really focus in on the congregation as a, I guess, um, an arena of political discourse, advocacy. Well, you can define your terms, how you want to talk about that. But um this seems to have been kind of a common thread through a lot of your work and especially this congregational element. Talk a little bit about why the, why you see the congregation as playing such an important role on the front of political theology. Yeah. So back there in the, in the late seventies, um, when I first started 
I was in the San Francisco Bay Area, and we were actually reading about political theology. It was called political theology back in those days. People like Moltmann and Pannenberg, and and um, in the Catholic realm, there was Johannes Metz, for instance, and his students. And um, so the so the dissertation was on primarily uh, Wolfhard Pannenberg's political theology and how it was received by three Americans. Uh, two of were Lutherans and one John Cobb, Methodist um, uh, Whiteheadian. Who, and the, uh, the two Lutherans were Carl Broughton at Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago and Richard John Newhouse, who was a pastor, but exceptionally uh, influential um, voice, ecumenical voice, eventually became Roman Catholic uh, priest. Um, but came out of the Missouri Synod as well. So um, eventually, I think a better term probably is public theology today than political because the word political uh, can be interpreted uh, way too narrowly because we interpret politics as voting, only voting, and uh, things like that. So, um, so I wrote an article in 1996 or seven, six, I think, for Word and World, um, our journal at Luther Seminary, um, uh, at the invitation of the editor at the time. And um, it was, in my own conception, I was just looking at it the other day, all my early notes. Um, the, the issue was, you know, there's always a theme for these issues, was the rage of nations. That was what the issue was called. And so I was actually using the language of um, public love and and um, in in the raging of the nations, including the nation being the United States. And um, part of my dissertation, a big chunk of my dissertation was on the Frankfurt School of Critical Social Theory and a guy named Jürgen Habermas and another American named Alvin Goulder. Um, so, um, and there was, a, there was a new stream of critical theory that was talking about civil society. So I ended up calling this article uh, uh, civil society and congregations as public moral companions. So I used the word moral at that point after a while. So the issue was less, was more the ethical basis of public and political life uh, than kind of pol electoral politics. It wasn't about electoral politics. And so that article became um, uh, kind of, um, Pat Kieford always said I should be writing a book about that article, you know, and, and um, I ended up writing lots of articles about it. But um, so there you get the congregations, you get civil society. So I spent a lot of uh, probably 15, 20 years working the civil society turf, um, was invited different parts of the world to speak Africa to the Lutheran World Federation there. Uh, I was invited to Edinburgh and um, to Belfast, actually gave a big lecture in Belfast um, through the University of Edinburgh, Edinburgh and um, on civil society and uh, uh, church life and, and ecclesial life. So um, yeah, that took up a lot of my intellectual energy and it, it was a way to, to, a lot of times political theology and even public theology seems one or two or three, <laughs> three um, steps removed from the life of congregations. And what I wanted to do was to bring it, and this comes out of my own pastoral work in Portland. So I was a pastor in Portland for seven years before coming to Luther Seminary. And that congregation there um, was particularly involved um, before I got there in hunger ministry in East Multnomah County in the 80s. So I came there in November of 1983 and stayed there until I came to Luther Seminary in July of 90. So I was there seven years. And um, Resurrection Lutheran Church was the church um, there that I was the associate pastor and part of my portfolio was mission and outreach and was also um, the congregation's relationship to what was called Snowcap, still there, Snowcap. And at the time, it was the largest hunger agency in the state of Minnesota, uh, Minnesota, the state of Oregon, if my state's right. So, um, and it was a, it was called a CAP program, came out of the 60s, and the Great Society, they were called community action programs, and a lot of them were church community action programs, so CCAP. 
So this was called Snowcap and was a was a coalition of, of 40 plus, usually 43, 44, different Christian congregations, Roman Catholics and Lutherans and Presbyterians and Methodists and Peace um, uh, Mennonites and Episcopalians and Baptists and um, so uh, that was on my portfolio as a pastor. And the first week, uh, one of the founders of Snowcap, about 15 years before I came, um, was a woman named Virginia Younger. She was in her 70s. And after I preached the first, uh, my first Sunday there in November of 1983, and I'm greeting people at the back of the church, you know, and uh, she says, uh, Pastor Gary, my name is Virginia Younger. I was at your interviews, and I know you know a little bit about Snowcap. Would you like to hear more about Snowcap? What are you saying for Sunday? No, I. <laughs> so, so I said sure, and I had no idea who she was, um, but she had been one of the founders of Snowcap, and was still on the board. And so she said, um, "So, would, uh, which day is better, Tuesday or Friday, for lunch for you?" So, uh, within a, within, I went on Tuesday. Three days later, um, at Virginia Younger, she's telling me the history of Snowcap, and then she says at the end of this, she says. So uh, I've been on the board and I want to, I'm, I'm getting older and I want to get off the board and continue as a volunteer. Uh, would you like to be on the board? Sure. So she says the board meets on Friday at noon um, or one o'clock in the afternoon or something like that. And so all of a sudden within less than a week, I'm on the board of Snowcap, the largest hunger program. So, um, and that's kind of, that's a civil society program. That's a, uh, one a lot of times they're called nonprofits. Um, I don't like the. I'd rather I like the terminology of civil society. How would you like to be a non, a non something? You know, uh, negative identities um, sometimes are very strong, but they're also negative identities. So um, rather than calling these, and they're still called nonprofits um, in a lot of places. So the civil society terminology is to try to have a positive imprint on that. And so I've written, in fact, the, the very last chapter of my critical social theory book brings in the critical, the um, civil society angle of critical theory. Yeah, I'm really glad you actually drew attention to that example, because when uh, I, I'm almost confident that you've had this experience too, but when I've taught from some of your work, and then have kind of w integrated that into my own, um, when I first get into the material, oftentimes, especially with pastors who come from um, like politically diverse congregations, the first question that will come to mind is, I don't, or statement is, I don't bring politics into the pulpit. And part of, I think there's in part a hearing problem there in the sense that they're not quite understanding what is meant by civic society or civil society or public life. Can you just respond to that particular question about politics and the pulpit and, and as if somebody who had approached you after a talk or something like that. Yeah. And that's very common, of course. And as, as you noted, and it's one of the reasons I went to the concept of civil society and to these, these intermediary organizations and this whole sphere of American, actually of Western life in general now, there's a lot of work on global civil society in different parts of the world, which is also very interesting. And, and I gave a lecture on civil I was actually, actually the, the, when I was invited to Africa, uh, it was a Lutheran World Federation event in Arusha. And the theme was uh, poverty and the, uh, and the ministry of the church in Africa ministry of the Lutheran church in Africa. And so it was a lot about civil society. And I was asked to talk about civil society there. Actually, I was to respond to the president of Tanzania, um, who was a very big civil society supporter, a Roman Catholic himself at the time. Um, so the, the concept of civil society, if you think about American life, has um, the two big systems, what are often called the systems, are politics and the economy, power and money. And then you have our, what's, what I use the term of our life world, which is our families, our friends, our, uh, our more um, intimate kinds of relationships. And usually congregations are down in that bottom rung. 
And if they don't want to get involved in politics, that's where they stay. If they don't want to get involved in the economy, that's where they stay. Um, so, but there's this huge, uh, this goes back to Tocqueville, who already noted that one of the most important things, he called them voluntary associations, that is happening already uh, in the 18th century in North America and the United States as it's being formed is all of these, um, uh, what nowadays we often call nonprofits or civil society organizations, um, which there are millions of them in the United States. And um, almost all your civil rights organizations are civil society organizations, all your hunger programs, all your, you, you name it, a lot of it then. And then the question is, how does it interact? How do those, how are they kind of intermediary between our private realms, which church had been labeled down there in congregations as the private realm. And so pastors thought, well, I'm not going to go way up here to the public, to the political, so they don't go anywhere, you know. And one of the things I learned, actually, uh, through Snowcap is how important these um, civil society organizations are. And um, eventually, uh, Snowcap, because the hunger in Oregon in the 80s, the economy was very bad. You had Reaganomics and the, the timber industry in Oregon, the bottom had fallen out of it because Japan was selling more to the United States and Canada was selling more to the United States. And the Oregon timber industry was, uh, people were unemployed all over the place. So we were, in, in a two year time period at Snowcap, we were feeding twice as many people. Um, so that we were serving uh, almost 50,000 um, bags of food a year, um, a huge amount. Of, and, and we couldn't keep up with those getting worse. So we organized all the rest of the hunger organizations in the state of Oregon, went to the legislature and the governor and petitioned them because there was no program for hunger in the state of Oregon at the time. So the governor who happened to be, um, I didn't know him personally, but I knew his rabbi. Um, the governor appointed a governor's commission on hunger and appointed me as the um, chair of the governor's commission on hunger. And we changed the face of hunger in Oregon because now it's still actually 30 years later, it's still there. There's a, a hunger budget in the state of Oregon that every two years, they do a, a two year budget in the state of Oregon has to go through a whole program with representatives. So it has to be part, uh, has to be part of the budgetary process of the state of Oregon now to this day. We, we got millions of dollars for a couple of years, but the biggest thing is we changed the whole uh, face of hunger and how it's dealt with by the state. Now, we did all that in conjunction with congregations, in conjunction with all these other hunger agencies. A lot of them were secular, not um, church-based, or most of them were church-based, except for the Catholic ones, for the most part. And uh, we even worked with businesses, some of the uh, local um, grocery store businesses in the state of uh, Oregon were very receptive to this. They, it was a way for them to kind of show a good face, you know, uh, we care about our, our community. And um, yeah, so we passed legislation and, and a, a, well, more than that, yeah, we passed an entire uh, budgetary. So those are the kinds of things that are possible when congregations work through civil society organizations, and then you can find those few places in the politics that you can kind of focus on for a while to actually make a difference. Yeah, that's very helpful, Gary. And I'm glad that you brought up Tocqueville, uh, you know, Alexei de Tocqueville's work and kind of his reflections on the mediating institutions within American society. I think Edmund Burke calls them the little platoons is sort of his... Yeah. I think that's his imagery. Yeah. 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 At, with yeah. All, all kinds of different sort of ways of thinking about that. But I, I know that you know this because we've talked about it in the past, you know, Robert Putnam's bowling alone, right? Uh, early 2000s or whatever it was, late 90s, drew attention to how these sort of civil society institutions have really been on the downturn. And so like, as we're in the ELCA, we're ref sort of reflecting on our own, uh, slow descent, at least numerically, you know, um, and, and the, the degradation there. But that's part of a much larger trend of these kind of mediating institutions in decline. And so it's not a particular problem only to the church. I just wonder how what you're saying about public theology 
How is that impacted by this clear kind of decline in these intermediate institutions? And yeah, maybe offer some reflections there about how you see the public theology piece fitting into this larger picture of decline in these kinds of institutions. Yeah, well, Putman's work, of course, was exceptionally uh, well-read. I mean, people read him, all kinds of people, and he was very accessible. And it was research database. It depends on what you're measuring, too. Um, and uh, just because something's in decline numerically does not mean it's in, in decline energetically. And uh, he did call it bowling alone, you notice, so it was recreational. Uh, his own metaphor um, wasn't about feeding the hungry or um, Black Lives Matter or, um, you know, justice for George or um, here in Minneapolis and, and around the country and around the world even. So, um, and those things kind of go up and down. Uh, one of the things that I've always liked about the Lutheran Church is we have a, we have a sometimes it's hidden, but what I would call a theology of institutions. Um, and so we believe in uh, Lutheran social service of uh, Minnesota. We believe in Lutheran services in America, which, by the way, when you combine the 300-plus organizations in uh, Lutheran services in America, is the largest conglomerate of civil society mo monetarily by the billions um, in the United States. So uh, when people ask what's the largest nonprofit in the United States, a lot of people will say, what? Salvation Army. It's about number eight, by the way, on the list. Or, um, or uh, Catholic Charities, it's about number five. Uh, the second largest is um, actually um, Blood. What am I thinking of? <laughs> Bloodmobile. Um, American Red Cross, um, which Lutheran Services in America's um, revenue is twice as large as the American Red Cross, which is the second largest in the country. That's a story that we don't know, even as Lutherans. We don't know this. And um, I've been trying to tell this story for 20 years, you know, and there's actually some charts out there that show this. And uh, people are always dumbfounded, like, are you kidding me? But we believe in, in the power of institutions and that God works through institutions, not just kind of voluntary organizations or, you know, uh, random kindness. No, we believe in actually patterned um, institutionalized kindness. And so we create institutions that are enduring over time. Um, and uh, we support them and we still support them. And a lot of those institutions, of course, are so big that they, um, they, they get money from federal government and, and state government as well. Um, and probably, well, they get more actually there. But, you know, Lutheran Services and the Lutheran Social Service of Minnesota, well, last time I checked, was about $120 million uh, a year. I think it might be higher than that. I haven't checked for a few years. I used to do a lot of work for Lutheran Services in America. Yeah, Lutheran World Federation, uh, Lutheran World um, Relief, for instance. Um, another one of these organizations um, that Lutherans form, these institutions that have come about, and you know, Lutheran Services in America, I mean, Lutheran Social Service of Minnesota, was started down in, by four congregations in Red Wing about adopting children who, uh, whose parents died. Um, so that's how they get started, you know, a, a very, uh, and, I think 150 years ago now, or 140 years ago or something like that. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought up this kind of theology of institutions. It's in many ways, it's, it's a functional theology and one that sort of flies under the radar, rarely is it made explicit, I think, in the way that you just did. Um, I, I'm grateful that that has been something that you have felt compelled to speak to speak about because I do think there is something about the current moment and, and you've all live in a political science guy at the, at, at, at the American enterprise Institute has just written a book called a time to build. And it's about institution building in particular and about he's mainly kind of reflecting on the way that the current incentive structures within social media environment actually lead people to think about institutions as more of platforms as opposed to character forming institutions. And I think there's something to that. I think he's really informed by the DC life, but I do think that there is an element of that that is true for the church that it is we are so incentivized to find platforms for personal branding 
Um, and, and less, it's just not sexy, right? To stand in front of a board of directors and say, I really want to do institution building. <laughs> I mean, this is the work of generations, right? That's part of the challenges that the institution work is the work of generations and it takes a lot of time and it's slow and often doesn't end up in headlines. Uh, you and I both work for one of those institutions, um, even though I'm going to be retiring from one. Um, right? So this one, it's a, it's a, it's a faith-based civil society organization. Um, if, you know, it's, it's, uh, if you look at it from that point of view, from a kind of a social scientific point of view, that's what we are at Luther Seminary. And, um, but, you know, so as you know, and, and Lutherans who listen to this know, we, we we brag a lot about our theology of vocation coming out of Luther and stuff, but we tend to think about that as individuals and very voluntaristic and voluntarism isn't, I'm not putting down voluntarism. I'm just putting it down. I'm just trying to say that's for Luther. That's too narrow. Uh, his understanding of vocations is that institutions had vocations as well. And that congregate, what I call congregational vocation, a public companion. So I try to get across to congregations when I go and speak on Sunday mornings and in retreats and things like that. That congregation, what's your congregation's vocations? How would you talk about the vocations of your congregation? Snowcap was one of, we had others besides Snowcap at Resurrection Lutheran Church in Portland. But that was one of our really long-lasting um, uh, uh, vocations in the community. So vocations can be shouldn't be narrowed only to individuals, which is why Luther started, um, you know, the whole notion of, of, of community chests. Now, that was, he, he, um, he wrote the first um, charters uh, in a place called Leipzig and in Wittenberg that became the model for the social welfare um, Lutheran countries, Germany, the Scandinavian, and all the Scandinavian countries. It spread very quickly which is why they have a better um, let's, uh, universal health care. They have better um, take care of the most vulnerable people than the United States, which puts a lot of that in either the workplace, like our health insurance for the most part, or, um, uh, or voluntary organizations alone. And so um, Luther spearheaded that and wrote the original um, the original charters. And, and you can go find it. They're translated in English. In Luther's works, they're very fascinating. By the way, he has a they have he has a whole list of, of procedures that you have that the city has to go through so they take care of the because you know in, in Luther's day um, the Catholic Church of his day you know the Roman Catholic Church of his day wanted a lot of poor people around so that individuals could do good works and earn God's favor by by uh, doing good works to poor people. Luther says we should be eliminating poverty, not not aggrandizing it. Um, and um, so he urged the princes and the city councils and the mayors um, to put into what they call community chest. Um, and when the Luther Exposition was here a few years ago at, at the Minnesota Institute of Art, uh, lots of people from around the country went and even the world. Um, they had the community chest from Wittenberg there. Um, there was a big... Uh, big brown wooden check with this, with this very fancy for the 16th century, very fancy lock system, you know? And, um, so they had, uh, in his charter, um, for the community chest, um, who should be, who should be running the thing, a board of directors, so to speak, and how often they should be reelected and, and, um, uh, what kind of people should be on it. And he had actually had a, had a, an equity system. So actually, People of poverty need to be on that program to get different perspectives. People on the city council should be on it. A clergy or two should be on it, mostly lay people, um, because they had the smarts to do that kind of stuff. So um, uh, Luther believed in these kinds of uh, institutions, and, and that's a side of Luther that is often neglected. I mean, we, we do the, you know, rightfully so, justification by faith alone um, and all that kind of stuff, but we miss Martin Luther as public theologian, which I've taught an elective called that, and people were interested in it. And so, as you know, a lot of my work, I, I like to draw from Luther, because um, he happens to be my theologian, so to speak, classic theologian. Um, 
and uh, he does way more work uh, in the public realms um, than what people uh, know about. It's just not a side of Luther that people get around to, so to speak. And is there some sense in, in which, why is that? Let me just ask that flat out. What, why does that happen? I, I get the sense as somebody who stands well outside of that field, that part of it has to do with sort of different questions that were raised within Luther renaissances and, and moments when Luther has kind of bubbled up to the surface and people are interested, they're interested in certain aspects. And to be, and to be fair, Luther's corpus is huge. And, and it's, <laughs> I mean, it is immense, and, and it's uh, not even all of it is fully translated yet, you know, in, into English. And so people can be forgiven for <laughs> having to deal with such a large body of work. But why is it that these elements of Luther have not come to the surface more? Yeah, well, I think we get, we get, we get uh, fixated on um, only the, the, the big theological issues um, between us and God, so to speak. And so justification, sanctification, vocation, although vocation starts getting you into the, so even in the Augsburg Confession, you know, you got one article, article 16, on uh, civic life. Um, and all the rest of them are on baptism and holy communion. There's nothing wrong with all that. But it's easy to forget that article 16 is there. Um, but Luther had a stronger first article of the creed than most people think. They, they think Jesus only, or even the Holy Spirit, you know. But they, they forget about the first article of the creed for Luther was huge. And, um, and, and that's, where, that's where the more public side of Luther comes out. And so, you know, um, and, and, and so he's called a magisterial reformer because um, the magistrates were behind, a lot of them were behind him and, and they supported him and they protected him. And, um, but he, he didn't just, he didn't just appeal to them and to their brighter sides. He reprimanded them. He was an advocate against them. Sometimes, uh, he didn't, he wasn't right on every issue, but he was in, uh, you know, he wrote two big books on usury and trade, for instance, economic, we would call them economic theology today. Um, he wrote a lot to the to princes and to into uh, governing officials, political authorities of various stripes, and you know that I've done some work on what the genre is called uh, mirrors of a prince, and that gets by the way, the mirrors of the prince at least in those days had both kind of a structural systematic systemic side, but they also had the character side. Um, so the prince has to have the virtues of justice, uh, which he calls outside of um, the prince is supposed to protect the free um, preaching of the gospel in Germany. But the second virtue of a prince is justice for the poor, for the oppressed. Psalm 82 is, he's, he wrote a spectacular, not only on Psalm 82, but my favorite one is his commentary on Psalm 82, which is spectacular actually. And he goes after not only the princes for abandoning the poor, but he goes after the bishops and the pastors for not going after the, <laughs> the princes for abandoning the poor. And prince was, was kind of a synecdoche, you know, a part for the whole, any kind of political authority, which included mayors and city councils and, you know, all the different things that they had in those days. Yeah. Well, Gary, we're kind of sliding into home here time-wise. I want to ask you one more question um, that hopefully we can uh, bring in home here. It, I've been reflecting a little bit on the kind of aesthetic of our current political moment, which I mean sort of the last six months, but I guess you could even say the entire sort of Trump presidency. And to a certain degree, the aesthetically, everything is iconoclasm. Um, Trump himself is an iconoclast. And in, in, by, by disposition, by um, uh, not always by policy necessarily, but, but often by rhetoric and the way that he engages, engages with the public through things like Twitter. Um, and of course, you know, so from sort of the president all the way to statue toppling, there is, we're in kind of an iconoclastic moment in my reading. What does it look like for the church to kind of engage in the prophetic critique side of things when the whole environment seems to be kind of caught up in an iconoclastic moment, sort of left and right. Yeah. Well, back in my 19 or 
2001 book, I guess, was the final date of critical social theory, um, I talk about prophetic reason. Um, and I didn't have time to go into it at that point, but I've written uh, some essays after that because it seems to me that not only um, are Christians called to be prophetic, but I actually have two other uh, basic categories, and I think they have to go together. And so it's what I call the prophetic, the sapiential wisdom, moral wisdom, ethical wisdom. And then the third one is the pacific. So prophetic, sapiential, and pacific. That is the just peacemaking. And um, so um, we are in this kind of, everybody is doing a iconoclasm, the prophetic, from different points of view, of course. I think probably the President Trump thinks of himself, if he were a Christian, uh, using any kind of categories, he would probably think of himself as being prophetic. Uh, he's not very sapiential, though, um, right? And the prophets, as you know, you, you teach the prophets, the Old Testament for the 8th century prophets and, and the other century prophets there. Uh, they hardly ever said anything new. They actually drew on the, on the law side, which comes through uh, wisdom. And so, um, and I think part of why the wisdom traditions are often more associated with, with the feminine or feminist, I would say feminist, um, uh, uh, side of things. The sapiential has been, has been, um, uh, it's not been as important. And so you've got, um, I love the book, The Prophetic Imagination by Brueggemann, for instance, you know, but, and he does a lot of stuff on peacemaking, but I also, uh, when I was doing my war and peace kinds of stuff, I did war and peace. I was doing a lot of war and a lot of sex for about 15 years on sexual ethics and, and uh, just war and peacemaking ethics. But the Pacific side, I, I, and I've always been, you know, I, as an 18-year-old, I read Martin Luther King and was, have, been, have been drawn to his, um, his uh, peacemaking uh, activity and, and theology and ethic all along, and I still teach a course for 20 years on Martin Luther King. That was my last course in June here. Um, so I think the Pacific, the sapiential, and the, uh, the prophetic, the sapiential, and the Pacific have to go together. And um, I think we're actually at a sapiential moment. Um, wisdom, of course, it's hard to make memes over wisdom, but um, it, there is a certain sense in which Black Lives Matter is both um, prophetic and sapiential, and I know a lot of people also want to be making true peace, you know, uh, what I would call, what's often called just peacemaking. So to see movements like that as combining these three, uh, they're all there in the Bible and the scriptures, um, and they're in uh, Western civilization in many ways, and, uh, and that's the role that Cicero played for Luther, by the way. Um, he gave him, he gave Luther a way to think about ethics beyond just give me a Bible passage. Luther was not a fundamentalist when it came to ethics and the moral life. Um, he was way more discerning in that. And, uh, this comes out of the, um, out of the, the, um, the tradition of Cicero, who people think is a Stoic, but he was not a Stoic, never called himself a Stoic. He does borrow from Stoicism, but uh, he's actually a mitigated skeptic. And in other words, he has a understanding of reason where you have to deliberate um, for towards a cons and try to reach consensus across all kinds of uh, racial, ethnic, well, they didn't have race in those days in the same way that we do today, but um, all kinds of uh, across the empire of the Roman empire of his day. Yeah. Here, that, thank you uh, for that. Uh, I Three of those are really important, and um, congregations. Um, some some of them. The interesting thing is, some of them. Um, you know, a lot of Lutheran congregations. I won't typify them. Are a little scared on the prophetic side, but if you talk about, you know, is there something wisdom oriented that we can bring to the public realm, or peacemaking oriented that we can bring to the public realm? Um, and that's what we had to do in Oregon when it came to hunger. Uh, it was easy to stand up and say, nobody's doing anything, people are dying of hunger and malnutrition and all kinds of things. And we had statistics, I used to go take all the statistics to the legislature in Salem, Oregon, 
um, as the chair of the governor's commission and put it all before them and stuff. But what we really needed was a wise way to uh, enter this question uh, more flourishing, flourishing for all the people, especially the most vulnerable people in the state of Oregon. So I want to think about congregations as prophetic, sapiential, and pacific. That's, that's a really interesting, provocative, helpful paradigm, Gary. Where can, is there a place, like kind of one place where people could track that down? You're thinking around those three? Yeah, there's actually an article that I published. Uh, it was in Dialogue mm, 10 years ago now or so. It's, I think you could find it in my larger resume someplace. And I'd be happy to, I can easily send it to you. I think, I'm trying to remember, I think I have a Dropbox of that too, so. Oh, that's fine. I'll make sure to tag that in particular in the notes so that since it came up in the conversation. But Gary, um, congratulations to you on your upcoming retirement. Um, thank you for all the work that you've done for our church, our denomination, for the seminary most especially. And I know that your uh, many you know uh, classes of students that you've taught will be sending you a fond farewell as well. So thank, th- thank you, Gary. Thanks a lot, Michael.